I don't know if you gathered, but we are still in our series on the Sabbath this morning. Uh, I hope, hope you figured that out uh, if you've been around for a little bit. We're still talking about the Sabbath today. Um, and we've been journeying, we, we, we just have completed kind of a, a journey through the Old Testament concepts of what it means to recover your life through what Eugene Peterson calls the unforced rhythms of grace. And this morning, we're, we're coming back full circle in a way to Jesus. And Jesus is the embodiment of the Sabbath. He is the fulfillment of everything that the Sabbath is, is calling us into and toward. He is the Sabbath day in flesh and blood. And when you come to Jesus, you find rest not just on the Sabbath day, but all week long. The Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann says that people who keep Sabbath live all seven days differently. Uh, and, and Sabbath is this opportunity that we have to take this long, hard look at our lives and to retune them to the right key. To make sure that our life is shaped around what really matters. And when we see the stuff in our life that is, is out of whack, we, we turn to Jesus and, and then he comes and he does this healing work. Because we get tired in our body and our soul and our own strivings. And, and so what we need is more than just 24 hours of respite. When we come to experience Sabbath, we are not coming on our own as a day to, to dwell within myself to gather my own strength to go forward. When we come to experience Sabbath, we are coming specifically to engage with Jesus and have him do the work of healing and Sabbath. We were talking about this this morning, and as we're looking through the Old Testament and the New Testament and trying to understand this concept of Sabbath, there is a way in which we individually have a responsibility an active role in Sabbath, but it's more about us giving into the Shabbating, the Sabbathing of God. And I think it wouldn't be a stretch to say that if we were to ask who the active agent of Sabbath actually is, it's not us. We don't Sabbath. God Sabbaths us. God fills our hearts with rest. God causes us to find our stopping place. It's more about us giving in. More, more so, I find myself when I am pushing against the limits of my own humanity and I'm feeling the push, I'm not the one pushing me back. I think it's God on the other side going, hold on, I need you to stop. I need you to slow down. It's more about my own releasing and allowing him to take over. And I find rest in him. I don't rest 
I don't myself engage. I am not the active agent of my own rest. I come and I find rest when Jesus Sabbaths me. We talk about the idea of remaining and abiding in Christ. And one of the things we like to say around here is that remaining, the act, the act of abiding in Christ is the most actively passive thing that you can do. And that seems countercultural, but to be, but in our own hearts, to actually be passive, to allow Jesus to work within us, to actually find rest in him, is an active thing where we actively don't put forward our own agendas, our own plans, our own work. Sometimes I think we find if we want to be more connected with God, what we do is we try to do more things. And yet, it's the opposite. Jesus isn't asking more from us to be closer to him. He's actually asking less of me and more of him. Let's pray, and then we are going to dig into our passage this morning. Jesus, as we, as we encounter your words here and, and this story of you, man, would we just be mindful of the truth that you are, are revealing to us, that you are showing us here in this moment. Help us to find you, to discover you, that we would allow your spirit to, to dwell within us, to work within us, to call it out to us, that we would be mindful of you, that we would experience you in a deeper way. Help us, Father, as we sit, as we dwell, as we learn, as we listen. We thank you for the beautiful words of encouragement that you bring us today. We just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so <clears throat> Jesus is the ultimate Sabbath observer. He is a, he is a literal master of rhythm and, and work and rest, and, and he should be. Jesus himself, we, we, we talk about Jesus as being the, the new and better Adam, this new creation, this human that reminds us of what humanity is supposed to be. And, and, he, and in doing so, he is going to recall the, the way of Eden. And so Jesus is going to show us exactly what it means to live a human life just as God always intended. He's really, really good at Sabbathing. I don't know if you know this. Jesus Sabbaths all the time in the Gospels. All the time. Uh, Luke writes that Jesus frequently withdrew to the deserted places and prayed. He fasts in the wilderness for weeks at a time. When the crowds start pushing and pressing in on him and his disciples, Jesus, what does he tell them? He doesn't say, hey, well, let's, let's keep going. He says, you know what? Let's, let's get out on the boat. Let's go take some time. Let's get out. Let's go to that island over there. Let's go across the way. 
Other times his disciples wake up early in the morning and Jesus is nowhere to be found. They're ready to start the morning, they're ready to start the ministry, and they can't find Jesus. Where is he? He's been up on the mountain praying, spending time alone with his father. And he comes down and they say, Jesus, where were you? He's like, I'm Sabbathing. I mean, essentially what he's saying, he's finding his presence with the Lord, with his father, and that propels him into ministry. He experiences presence. For all of the stories and the accounts of Jesus teaching and healing and eating, I don't know if you know, Jesus eats a lot in the Gospels too. The two things he does really well is he Sabbaths and he eats all the time. He's partying constantly, okay? So Jesus is like the ultimate extrovert and the ultimate introvert at the same time. We can all find a place with Jesus. That's the beauty of, of him. And... Um, but for all of the times when he is, is eating and, and, and drinking and, and, and healing and working and teaching, he is also withdrawing, disappearing, removing himself from public view, praying in the desolate spaces. To me, Jesus gives introverts like a, a, a little ray of, of hope and purpose that there's a place for us in the presence of God. Jesus is a master of Sabbath rest. But that that mastery is not rooted just in the fact that he happens to also be God and that he himself created Sabbath rest, and we can definitely give him that benefit, right? But it also comes from the fact that he, more than anyone else who ever walked this earth, understands what Sabbath is meant for. Now, there's this particular story in uh, the Gospels that makes Jesus' mastery clear to us. And it helps to show us not only how the Sabbath fits into our nature as a grace-filled new creation, but also why the Sabbath is so good and necessary. So if you have your Bibles, uh, we are reading Matthew chapter 12. You can go ahead and open them now, um, if, or, or if you haven't already, that's where we'll be. If you don't have a Bible, we have a few in the back, uh, and if you want one, raise your hand. We'll make sure we get it to you. Otherwise, just, hey, read off your neighbor. If you're not near your neighbor, get in close and say, hey, I'm going to read off your, your Bible today. Verse 1. Uh, at that time, Jesus passed through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick and eat some heads of grain. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, See, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. All right. Who are the Pharisees? Who are the Pharisees? Now, we kind of look at this and go, the Pharisees, like in, our, in the church, when we use the word Pharisee, it usually has a negative term. The Pharisees are the bad guys, right? They're always the bad guys, okay? And, 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 and in fact, another term that we often make synonymous with Pharisee in our current culture is when you hear somebody called a Pharisee, they're usually also referred to as a hypocrite. They're kind of one, and the, they've become synonymous terms in our culture. And that's for good reason. Jesus calls them hypocrites all the time. That's like his favorite name for them is hypocrite, right? 
It's like his big thing. You actors, you are play-acting faith. You're not actually being faithful. And so, so we, we get that, but, but listen, hear me out for a second. In this day and age, in first century Judaism, the Pharisees were the good guys. You would not see the Pharisees as the bad guys. You would see the Pharisees as the good guys. Now, now, these are a people, Israel, who are under uh, the oppressive thumb of Rome. And, and even though they were back in their land, they had been sent away in exile over and over and over again. And they finally returned to their, their home country, their homeland. And yet, even as they, they exist in their land, they are still not ruled in themselves. They are ruled by the Roman Empire. And so, even living in their own country, they are still a, a nation in exile. They are not free to govern themselves to rule themselves, to exist for themselves. And they knew that, at least for their understanding, the reason why, as they look back through the Scripture, the reason why we keep finding ourselves exiled and, and, and taken away and being judged by God constantly is we keep failing to keep the Torah, the Hebrew law. Every time we fail in our keeping of the Torah and the prophets reminding, reminding us of this, he said, you hide your face from the Sabbath. You, 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 can, you continue to just break the law over and over and over again. And so for the religious leaders, what they're trying to do is say, if Torah breaking gets us into this mess, then it stands to reason Torah keeping will get us out of it. So their primary objective and goal was to keep the Torah above all else. If we can keep the Torah, we can stay in good standing with God and we will be removed from our exile finally. We keep blowing it, so let's stop. Now, to make sure that they did not break the Torah ever again, what they did was they built a fence around the Torah. The Torah itself is already essentially a fence, and what they did was they just built another fence inside of the fence to create more fences. Remember the Sabbath. They would take a command like, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And then they would add on extra rules and extra commands just to make sure that they didn't break it even by accident. Now, let me, let me just stop and say that this is not necessarily a bad thing. I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing to add fences into your life. Uh, I have areas of my own life where I have done this, and, and particularly I can think of areas where I have grieved God and others because I'm selfish, uh, because I, I am I'm focused on me and my own desires, my own wants, and my own insecurities, and, and as a result, I have... I have left that relationship, and, I, and in those particular areas, I don't trust myself to wander too far into spaces that promote and provoke my sin nature to action. So I get the need to insulate yourself from 
advertisements for self-fulfillment and self-promotion. Because really that's what the Pharisees were doing. They were insulating themselves, protecting themselves from themselves. Have you ever had to do that? Protect yourself from yourself. We are known to, to get into situations like that where we need some extra fencing. Except, I, well, you might have some, there might be some very simple ways to help work yourself out in the individual areas in which you have found yourself pushing over the edge to grieve God. The Pharisees just take it to another level, just a whole different level. So regarding the Sabbath, they added dozens and dozens of rules. They took the idea of work, do not work on the Sabbath, and they broke down the word work into 39 different categories. And and those categories talk about how far you could walk, uh, how much weight you could carry, what you can cook. I I don't know if you know this, but on the Sabbath, you can't tie your shoes with more than one hand. Because two hands is work, but one hand is not. Every aspect has been detailed down to the the finite so that we don't ever break. If we don't break those laws, there's no way we can break the Torah, right? And even if we do accidentally go unlawful, we're still this far away from actually breaking God's law. So we'll be safe. Now, by the time Jesus enters the scene, the Pharisees had taken this, this written law of the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, And in the Torah, there are 613 commands, which already seems like a lot. And they added on an extra 1,500 rules in addition. So when the Pharisees are asking why Jesus' disciples are doing something that is not lawful, they're not talking about the law, the Torah. They're talking about the Mishnah. The Mishnah is this oral this oral collection of of extra rules and regulations. The the disciples, when they're looking out and going, they're being unlawful, what they see is these disciples hopping over the man-made fences that were set up in order to keep men righteous. Now, I want to show you something, and this is, this is a good way of my understanding of how this is all working out and where we tend to find ourselves in our own ways of Mishnah. This is what I call the humanity band. Humanity band, okay? Um, this right here is the humanity band. And, and on either side, we, we see um, these commands of God that are meant to create a safe space in which you and I dwell together with God, exactly as he created us to be. This this space right here is the ideal space of our humanity, where God said, right here, this is where I want you to dwell. What tends to happen in our culture is when we experience something good, we say, man, that was good. I wonder if we can experience all of it. if, If this much good is good, then all the good will be more good. And so what we do is we take those things and we push past them into license. This thing that says, I can just do whatever I want. If I take this thing, whether it's sex 
or, or alcohol or, or language or, or something, and I push beyond it into the most extremes, then that will be the fullest expression of my humanity, and I will, I will have done everything. And yet what we find is that when we push past those limits where gifts become gains, where the accumulation of stuff and the experiencing of every possible pleasure, we don't find ourselves being more human. We find ourselves being less. We give into a subhuman life. Now, in response to that, or in fear of possibly heading over into this subhuman life of license, what we do is we, we restrict we go, I don't ever want to experience too much of a good thing, and so I will do as little as humanly possible. So I won't, I may not f- push all the way in, into sexual impropriety, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back and just be a complete, total prude in every aspect of the world. And so what we do is we, we bind ourselves in and, and, we, and we stay safe from license. But what we end up doing instead is we add extra shackles of rules and regulations and fences upon fencing and this restriction of, of living life and actually being free in Christ. And we do the same thing. We experience a subhuman life that is still less than what God meant for us to be. Right here, this is where we find our humanity. To be free to live exactly as God planned. And here's the thing, I think that this space, this liberty space right here, where we experience actual freedom, This is where God himself dwells with us. The further away that we go, whether it's toward license or toward legalism, the further away from God we actually get. Because in both responses, we're not trusting on God to provide and to experience what he gives us. We take it into control for our own selves. Only I can determine how much of a a good thing that I need for better or for worse. And the further away that we get from God's presence, the further away from our humanity we also get. We become less than what he made for us to be. It makes, us about, it, makes it about us instead of him. Now Jesus responds to the Pharisees' law of, of, of right with this, this unbelievably profound answer Verse 3, he said to them, hey, haven't you read what David did when he and those who were with him were hungry? How he entered the house of God and they ate the bread of the presence, which is, is not lawful for him or for those with him to eat, but only for the priests? Or haven't you read in the law that on Sabbath days, the priests in the temple violate the Sabbath and are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. 
Jesus totally schools them on Sabbath here. So one of the Torah laws, like way back in in Leviticus, was this this thing called the bread of the presence, or the showbread, as as Cindy said. It It was this set of 12 loaves that were set out on a gold table every Sabbath. And it was, it was there, this like super holy bread set apart for just for the priesthood to eat in the presence of Yahweh himself. That's, that's all it was. It was bread baked every Sabbath, set on this table to be eaten uh, by the priests in the presence of Yahweh. It's the most holy of breads. I don't know why we don't have super ultra holy bread here, but this is what they did, Okay. Um, now, there's this story that is, is where David, before he becomes king, and he's, he's on the run from, from Saul, who is his advisor, his father-in-law, who's just, he hates his guts, and he just wants to murder him at this point. He's on the run, and as he's, he's heading through this town, he, he sees the tabernacle, and he goes in, and the priest comes out to meet him, and he says, dude, we're starving. Do you have anything to eat? And so the priest lets him, he brings, he's like, I only have consecrated bread. It's the only thing I have in here is consecrated bread, holy, the bread of the presence. So he brings it out and he says, I only ask one thing. I just need to know, your men can eat this bread. They just need to be consecrated from women. I'll give you three guesses what that means. They need to be set apart from women. And David's like, yeah, they've been, set as, they've been consecrated for weeks. Um, like I said, you can figure that one out on your own. Um, so, so this is what happens. And David is there. And he says, did David break the law? Was he unlawful? Should he have been sentenced to death for eating this bread? He wasn't. Then Jesus reminds him of more Torah laws about priests and how they work on the Sabbath. So every Sabbath, the priests are working all day. They are preparing bread. They're keeping the lamps lit. They're burning sacrifices. They are, they are working this whole time. And according to the Pharisees and all of their Mishnah fencing, the priests themselves would be doing an unlawful thing. And yet, the Torah tells them. So you might break the Mishnah, but you'd be breaking the, you might keep the Mishnah, but break the Torah at the same time. So Jesus is just, this is what he's getting them all down to. Like he's, he's, he's sharing all of these stories to bring them down in one way to the absurdity of what they've done. But it, it comes down to this. In all of their pursuit to not break the law, they still fail to keep. In all of their efforts to not break God's law, they fail to keep the law because what is the law all about? Why was the law there? And it comes down to a fundamental misunderstanding of what they thought the law was about. For them, they thought the law was this thing that if I do all of these things, or if I don't break them, then God will be happy with me. I will find favor with him. I will earn my salvation with him. But no, that's not what the law was about. The law was this thing that says it was instituted as a boundary within which 
you would have a safe space to be the people of God who dwell with him together and they enjoy him, they are satisfied in him, they work with him, they celebrate his protection and direction and purpose. Now, and, and it's, it's meant so that this boundary line keeps you safe inside of it. And the Sabbath was yet one of those things instituted to create not only a sacred space for them to dwell with Yahweh, but a sacred moment in time to dwell with him. They are fences, but they are fences built to keep evil out and good in. The problem is that Israel keeps looking out at the fences instead. And they're wondering, how far can I venture out? How close to the boundary? How, how near the line can I tow without getting into trouble? More fences means less line towing, but it doesn't change the fact that where are their eyes, where is their attention, where is their mind focused? Not on the God who, who dwells right now with them, but out towards the boundary line. Their focus is in the wrong place. I can do this, I can't do this. It's right to do this, it's wrong to do that. And Yahweh has nothing to do with any of it. A relationship with God doesn't mean you're focused on the fences. It means you are free. You are free to dwell with him in his presence. Free to enjoy his safety and security and the hope that he brings. And so as you experience his glory... You are glorified in him. And when we say you are glorified in him, what we mean is that your values, your character and your nature and your will and your decisions become aligned with his. And who you are or who you become reflects who he is. That's what it means to be glorified in him. Now, this is where Jesus just drops the hammer on the Pharisees. He says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what this means, that I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is telling the Pharisees here, he's like, guys, you are stuck thinking that the temple and the rituals and the rules on the rules is all that there is to this life. You are a slave to that which was meant to, to establish your freedom. And you are missing out on experiencing this sacred space and the sacred moment where God himself dwells with you. And guess what? Right now, the very presence of God is here at its fullest and most real, and you are missing it. The temple is not all there is. Sacrifices are not all there is. Holy bread is not all there is. And even the Sabbath is not all there is. 
But all of those things are meant to cultivate the sacred moment of relationship with the one true God, where his grace flows through you, whose mercy and compassion and loving kindness flow through you and extend to those around you. When Jesus says he is the Lord of the Sabbath, the master of all things rest, he is not concerned with the right way of doing it. He's concerned that you experience the good things that it offers you. The greatest thing that the Sabbath rest offers you, time with him. What does Jesus say right before this passage? He says, come to me all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. It's not about how perfectly you practice the Sabbath. Did you spend time with the Father? If you don't spend time with the Father, then you've missed the Sabbath. That's what it comes down to. I fit all the rules. I did what I was supposed to do. I I didn't work, and I didn't do this, and I didn't do that. Did you spend time with Jesus? You didn't spend time with Jesus, and that's just a vacation. It's just a day off. That's not Sabbath rest. That's making it, once again, where you become the active agent of your rest. Not where he is the active agent. Mark, the, another gospel writer, he gives the same account, but he adds this other line from Jesus. And in that account, Jesus says, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. You know, if you are a first century Jew, you uh, who are obsessed with rule keeping, and, and you needed to hear the second part of that line, it's not man for the Sabbath, guys. It's the Sabbath is not this cold, arbitrary rule that we have to obey. It is a life-giving art form that we get to practice. Now, for us in our modern-day America, we need to spend a little more time on that first part. The Sabbath was made for man. Because it's not, it's not that we have too many rules about Sabbath. It's that we don't have any at all. We don't have any rules about Sabbath. We love to take time off on a weekend or a holiday or vacation, but do we ever take enough time just for rest and worship? Do we take time? Is Sabbath all about Jesus? Some of us need to lift our eyes up from the rules and the regulations and, and, and turn them toward Jesus and our relationship with him. Others of us need to lift our eyes up from the recreation and recover our relationship with Jesus. If Sabbath is all about what you can and cannot do, then you become the master of Sabbath. If Sabbath is all about you and whatever you want, your desires and your personal fulfillment, then you become the master of Sabbath. So what does it look like then for Jesus to be the master of all things rest and worship in your life? 
It means that first and foremost, he is the one in his grace and mercy that creates the sacred space and moment for you to dwell. It also means that once you're there, he wants you to spend time with him, to get to know him, to become like him, to find your ways becoming his ways. Is Jesus the master of your Sabbath rest? Or are you? Now the story continues in verse 9. Uh, moving on from there, he entered their synagogue, and he, there he saw a man who had a shriveled hand. And in order to accuse him, they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Clearly they have not gotten the picture yet. First, there was the Mishnah, the rules upon rules. And again, this question of lawful versus unlawful. But but look how far it has come. Because for the Pharisees, it is not a question of good. It is a question of right. And if you are practicing the law rightly, you, you won't eat what you have not already prepared, and you won't heal what has been broken, and you won't save what has been lost, because that is work. That's physical exertion, and it's wrong. Better, in their minds, to starve yourself and remain crippled than to break the Sabbath rules. So Jesus just just takes them to town in this. So verse 11, he replied to them, Who among you, if he had a sheep that fell into a pit on the Sabbath, wouldn't take a hold of it and lift it out? A person is worth far more than a sheep. So it is lawful to do what is good on the Sabbath. Then he told the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and it was restored as good as the other. The Pharisees bring them into this because they know that Jesus is a healer. They know that he has this ability, this this capacity. They expected it from him. Healing is, is in Jesus' work, this tangible expression of the kingdom of God breaking into the world. But uh, as I was reading, did you, I don't know if you know this, almost all of Jesus' healings, do you know when they take place? They take place on the Sabbath. Almost all of Jesus' healings take place on the Sabbath. And I don't think that's a coincidence Because I think in God's economy, in his kingdom, the Sabbath is a day for healing. It's a day for healing. Jesus is not concerned as the Pharisees are about what is right. He is concerned about what is good. Sacrifices and temple observances and, and rules of the Sabbath are right, And they will make you righteous in your eyes and probably in the eyes of others and hopefully down the road in the eyes of God. If you don't actually spend time with God, if you don't spend time in his word or in prayer with him, and you don't actually know what God is all about, then your best guess as to what he would probably be happy with you about or favor you with is by how well you keep the laws and the commands and the rules. I think this is really prevalent in our church. 
We don't know enough of who God is or, him, or God himself. We don't actually spend time with the Father, but we've spent enough time in churches and figuring out what the expectations of things are, and we have enough of a moral center to go, this should be, this shouldn't be, and so we, we figure as best as we can, without actually getting to know the actual God of the Bible, my best guess would be that I have to keep all of these rules and keep all this stuff, and then I'll be right with him. And so usually when you have people who are on the outside trying to figure, do I actually want a relationship with Jesus? It usually doesn't come down to, do I know Jesus as a healer, as a provider, as a perfecter? At least in the beginning. Oftentimes the argument comes down to, do I really want to keep all of those rules and regulations? Do I really want to fence my life in more than it already has? That doesn't sound fun to me. That sounds sad. I don't want it. And unfortunately, because so, for so long in the church, we ourselves, out of fear for venturing into license, we do not dwell in that ideal liberty humanity. We hone ourselves in, hedge ourselves in, fence ourselves back into this legalistic box that says, this is right, this is right, this is right. And the thing is, God is standing right over there going, don't worry about the box, just come and hang out with me. It does not stand to reason that the closer we are to God, the less we'll be from probably falling away from him and going about things our own way. The closer we are to experiencing the presence of God, the further we get from doing, from, from walking, from, from doing things that would displease him. Jesus is not concerned as much about what is right so much as what is good. So what is good? What is the good things? Loving kindness and faithfulness. Grace and compassion and forgiveness. Justice. The very nature of God is the definition of goodness. If you want to understand what is good, it is God defined is good. It is who he is, and it is by that definition by which we live and move and have our being. I love how Jesus just calls them out on that hypocrisy once again. He says, if you had a sheep, something that you cared about and you were responsible for, and that sheep fell into a pit, you would not be concerned about the right thing. You'd be motivated by mercy to do the good thing. What day it is doesn't, wouldn't matter to you. It is lawful to do not what is right, but what is good on the Sabbath. It is lawful to do what is good on the Sabbath. And the man stretches out his hand, this shriveled and deformed piece of broken humanity, and Jesus makes it new. We've been talking about the Sabbath for weeks now. And I think by this time we understand that the seventh day, 
uh, uh, this day of rest and worship is something that we are commanded to observe. It is part of the countercultural, subversive nature of this new society, this, this humanity that Jesus has brought you into by his death and resurrection. But hear me out right now. Do not practice the Sabbath because you think it is the right thing to do. God will not suddenly be happier with you if all of a sudden you start not working on sundown to sundown on the Sabbath day. He will not all of a sudden be happier with you if you become a better rule follower. He is not so interested in your attention to the fences. He's interested in your attention to him. In the very source and definition of good. So don't practice the Sabbath because it's the right thing to do. Practice the Sabbath so that you can spend more time with the healer to recover your life as you were always meant to experience it. And we'll talk about this next week. But there's a reason why in the church we practice Sabbath on the first day and not the seventh. Because one day when Jesus returns, all of creation will dwell with him all day, every day. All of eternity will be Sabbath rest. Day in, day out. Wherever you go, moment by moment, you will experience rest in him completely. We practice Sabbath rest on day one in anticipation of that day when all things will be made new, when every day is Sabbath day, when we will no longer have to keep pushing and keep fighting and keep suffering through because we will encounter the healer the protector, the provider, in an everyday, everywhere, moment-to-moment state of rest. When we come and we enjoy the Sabbath that God invites us into, we keep our eyes fixed on the one who will one day return us to the garden where we will enjoy him forever. It's not about what is right. It's about what is good. Amen? Amen. Let's pray, and we'll, we'll worship together. Jesus, what are the ways in which we are going about this, this, this Christian life and walk where we are trying to become the agents of our own righteousness, our own, our own glory, where we are defining glory on our own terms and not on yours? I ask that you would do an active work of Shabbating in us, of making that cease within us, and of bringing us to peace and fullness in you. as we just begin to, to just continue to, to, to open the box a little bit and, 
and unlock this concept of, of rest, which we desperately need in our society today, and even in our church. My prayer, oh man, is that this would not become yet another way in which we have brought self-righteousness upon ourselves. That somehow we practice Sabbath better than other people practice Sabbath. That that makes us more holy, more righteous than others. May that never be the reason that we push into, into this concept of Sabbath where we experience a day of rest and worship. May that be something that we actually experience the peace of God in our lives because you have brought that in, welcomed us in, invited us into into your safe space to dwell. May that refresh us. May that bring us healing because, Jesus, you are the healer. That that the Sabbath is a day for healing, not not of starving, not of hurting, but of healing, of restoration of revival in our souls and our spirits. May that not be something that we cast others aside in the moment in our own pursuits of righteousness, but may that be something we invite others into experience. May we walk towards others with with an understanding of of rest in our own lives, and may that rest extend out and carry over to others. May it calm their spirits. May it bring healing and restoration to them as they get to experience rest through us. May we be rest-filled creatures because of your grace and mercy and forgiveness. We ask that you would be the master of all things rest and worship in our lives, that you would be the Lord of our Sabbath. Thank you. It is in your name that we pray. Amen.